Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, I'm the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am thrilled to welcome Laurie R. King to the podcast today. Hi, Julie! Hello! Laurie is the New York Times best-selling author of 18 Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, five Kate Martinelli's, two Stuvant Grays, she's going to correct me on that, five standalones, novellas and anthologies, and in 22 is launching a new series with Back to the Garden featuring San Francisco Police Department Inspector Raquel Lang. She's won the Edgar, Agatha, Anthony, Lambda, Wolf, McCavity, Creasy Dagger, and Romantic Times Career Achievement Awards, and has an honorary doctorate, is a Baker Street Irregular, and a member of SYNC, MWA, CWA, TWI, and IAHW. In 22, she was named... MWA's Grand Master. Laurie, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you, Julie. Well, I love talking about writing to writers, especially writers as accomplished as you are. And we have so much to talk about with your books, but let's start where I always start in this podcast and talk about your journey as a writer. When did you say to yourself, I want to write books? I love the idea of being accomplished as a writer because mostly what that means is you've survived. <laughs> so, you know, I, I started I started writing in uh, 1987, which just seems like another world, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I was first published in in 92, but the, for the first um, 93. But um, I started writing in in 1987, and I and I think it was kind of like that that business that so many people get started writing because they they go to the library, bring some books home, and none of them catch their imagination. So they think, man, I could I could I could do better than this, couldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in in a sort of huff, you sit down and start writing, and pretty soon you got a book. Um, and that's sort of how I started. And I think that uh, <laughs> one of the things that that no writer in my position really likes to admit, except those of us who do, do is, um, is how much luck plays a part in this whole thing. Um, you know, it happened to be the right time for what I was writing. I happened to catch the eye of the fabulous Ruth Cavan at St. Martin's Press. I happened to be able to write at the pace that they needed. And I happened to have three books out. I mean, three books finished more or less by the time my first one came out so that it meant I could say to them, well, yes, I have another book available for next year, which you know, if I'd had to just turn one out then and there, might not have been possible because I was a mom. I was I had young kids and who has time to work a full-time job on top of that. But it's the advantage of not selling your first book until you've got two more written. Than- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
um, were they two more in the same series or were they two separate books? One in the same series. So that I wrote two in the Mary Russell series. And while my agent was shopping them around, um, I, I got an agent after that. But And while she was shopping them around, I thought, well, the world doesn't seem really jumping on the idea of Mary Russell as a young apprentice to Sherlock Holmes. So maybe I'll write something a little closer to home, a little more realistic, a little, um, a little harder edge. And so I wrote the Kate Martinelli, the first of the Kate Martinelli's called a grave talent. And as again, luck would have it, that was the first one sold, which was fortunate because it won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel in 1993 novels, and 1994 was when they gave the prize. And I don't think that the Russells would have would have done that. Um, MWA tends to look at things that are just slightly edgier than the really cozy, and also it's it's difficult to justify giving a prize to something that is basically using someone else's character, which I mm-hmm. certainly do in the Russell and Holmes stories. So one thing and another, um, I mean, as it, as it turns out, the Russell and Holmes are way more popular than the Martinelli's, but the <laughs> Martinelli's were the ones to have won a couple of major awards and been nominated for several others. So, um, it's nice to be known for both, but yeah, but I had, I wrote the first of the Russell stories of Beekeeper's Apprentice. And then I wrote what turned out to be the third one. Letter of Mary was the third. And then I wrote A Grave Talent after, uh, while I was waiting to see if the world wanted to read more about Mary Russell. And so let's, I want to back up a little bit more. 35 years ago, you said, I'm going to try to do this because I'm, I'm bringing books home. Had you been a writer um, before, you know, a creative writer, or was this a new endeavor for you or, or how did you come to the, you know, build your writing muscle? <laughs> well, in the same way that journalists learn how to write by just having to turn out words. Mm-hmm. I was a grad student for the last few years. and one thing that grad students have to do is to turn out words. You turn in papers, you write a thesis, you, you're producing words that, that make it cease to be intimidating. I mean, you put words on the page and then you make them better, but they're not, the blank page is not quite so fearful a thing. So when I finished my master's degree, which was in Old Testament theology, with a natural next step <laughs> was to move into writing fiction, particularly crime fiction. Um, I mean, I had two small kids. I had a husband who taught the school year. He was a professor at the university, which meant that I couldn't really see getting a normal job of a 50 week a year job because quite often we would just take off in the summer and there's not a lot of jobs other than in school 
that you can say to your employers, um, by the way, I'm going to be off in England right. or India or wherever for the next eight weeks. Um, so I, when the kids were small, I sat down and I started writing, thinking that sentences on a page were something that I could do. I had the skill. Mm-hmm. And although I'd never taken a creative writing course, I had several years before experimented with fiction. I started a non, a a sort of sci-fi futuristic novel and got halfway through it and realized I had no clue how how to write the rest of it. So I put it aside when the kids were small. And so I'd, I'd sort of experimented, but not, not a very successful experiment. Um, but I thought, I've been reading stories my whole life. The mm-hmm. language of fiction is ingrained in my brain and in my bones. So surely I can tell a story of some kind. So mm-hmm. that's, where, that's where it started. And I sat down and I wrote what turned out to be almost precisely the first sentence of The Beekeeper's Apprentice. and. With that simple sentence of, I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes. Um, (laughs) Mary Russell and her voice and her situation just stepped into my life. Um, It's extremely fortunate when a writer has that experience. And it's rare. Mostly we have to think about our characters. Um, we have to experiment with what they look like and where they come from and what their backstory might be and um, and and where this particular tale is going to take them. But with this, with The Beekeeper's Apprentice, I was extremely fortunate in that Russell just stepped in and took over. So. Was it always crime fiction for you? I mean, you, you know, obviously these are the first books you wrote, but but had, you know, was that your what you were drawn to or, or what, what brought you to crime fiction? If you had told me before I started writing that I was going to be writing novels in two years or five years, I would have assumed that what I would be writing would be sci-fi because I tended to read mostly science fiction. At the uh-huh. time. <clears throat> I'd read, you know, I'd read Dorothy Sayers and I'd read the classics and I, I, I kept up with the sort of spread of what mysteries were. So I had at least read mysteries, mostly the golden era, um, classical kind of whodunits. But when I started writing, I think it, I think my brain requires more of a structure than sci-fi. Sci-fi mm-hmm. and m- mainstream fiction can go anywhere. They can just go anywhere. You can do anything. And there aren't any real rules other than some sort of inner consistency in the books. But mysteries, and especially the traditional mystery, has a skeleton that you hang the story on, doesn't it? I mean, the the final appearance of the 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 flesh that clothes the skeleton as it were can look like anything i mean it can be tall or short you know any color any shape any 
flavor and personality, but it has to be built around the skeleton of the story. And at the time, since I knew mostly the sort of traditional detective whodunit structure, that's that's where I started. And I think that my stuff probably would be more in the center of things, both then and now. That is, if you look at the, the genre as being a spectrum from the very, very cozy, the Agatha Christie whodunit puzzle mystery, and at the other end, the driving thriller. Mm -hmm. um, the middle ground is generally called suspense. And that's that's the ground that I'm usually found in and classified in and 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 feel comfortable in. It's I I find that both ends of the spectrum are more limited to me. I want I want more excitement in my cozies and less heart pound in my thrillers. So that's I'm suspense in the middle. <laughs> um, I love that definition because that's a that's a new to me, uh, but accurate because thrillers and suspense and how we define things and genres are, are a flowing conversation that um, we can all talk about at conferences and we do things. But you have to understand where your novels fit and, and what it you know, what you want to write and also what the market will do with it. Yeah, um, yep. it's part of it. Yeah, and I think that as beginning writers, it's one of the questions that I know that when I got started, I <laughs> I wrote A Grave Talent not thinking about it being a mystery. I mean, I, I don't think that anyone who really starts is aware of the idea of mystery as a genre, because they're mm -hmm. all fiction. Um. I think a lot of us, when we start, are pretty well unaware of the, the quote, rules, unquote, of the genre and why we should follow them and why we shouldn't. I, I last year, um, co-edited a book called How to Write a Mystery. And yeah. one of the first, one of the first people we chose was Neil Nyron, the editor, to write the introduction chapter to say, basically, what is this genre? Mm -hmm. Why are there rules? Why do we follow them? And when do we break them? Because mm -hmm. it's sort of like abstract art, which is all very well and good, but it's much better if the artist can do realistic sketching and chooses not to. Right. So that's that's sort of where I think a lot of us start is not really thinking of the, the novel that we are writing as being a crime novel, a mystery novel, but it's a novel. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the novel was about a murder in a community and the two cops that solve it. And you think, where else would you put it? But, <laughs> but on the mystery shelf. But at the time, I thought of it as a novel. Yeah. Fortunately, my agent <laughs> knew the market a little better than I and um, sent, it, sent it to somebody who was actually interested in mystery novels rather than in general novels. <laughs> Can we talk about Mary Russell a little bit? And, you know, I love that that line came to you. And, you know, I have a friend who 
can't start a book until she knows the first line. And this character came to you and Sherlock Holmes, who is so iconic and who everybody knows, but you've able, you've been able to develop him in different facets of him that stay true, but also enrich uh, for what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did um, <laughs> all those years ago. Um, were you, I mean, you're writing your first novel, so, so, maybe thinking about this less, but, you know, working with a character like Sherlock Holmes is not for the faint of heart because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people with very strong opinions about him and his, his you know, everything else. And, and in the years since we've got so many more adaptations of him and what, you know, uh, what's, you know, I think of Sherlock as opposed to Jeremy Brett's, which I think is the best um, Sherlock Holmes. But, uh, you know, can you talk to me about that? You know, just sort of taking this character and giving him a different life. I think, again, I was I was fortunate in my ignorance because it didn't really occur to me that there would be this entire community of Sherlock Holmes fans in the sense of fanatic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that um, that might notice me and that might object to what I was doing with the character. So being 1987, I think it was probable that some of the Jeremy Bretts were playing on the television. What they would have been broadcasting at the time, I don't know. But I was not a particular Sherlock Holmes um, fan or reader before I started writing the Russell character. And I, <laughs> you know, I write the first sentence and then I think, oh, dear, maybe I should know something about Sherlock Holmes before I write much more. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I so I went out to my local bookshop and and got a, two volumes of the collected stories that were I think done by Dover Books. And they were mass market, so they were extremely tiny print. I still have them somewhere, and they're I probably couldn't even read them now because they're such tiny print. But I read my way through the stories, and I think it's an interesting way of discovering a classical character like Holmes, because I'd read. You know what? What is it that you read in in high school? The, the Speckled Band and the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes. Thing. So, yeah. And it's impossible not to know the Holmes character to some extent. But I had not read the stories in any sort of methodical way, and I probably had not read most of them until I sat down and read my way just straight through the collected works, and I found that he. He was not the character that I had anticipated. You tend to think of him as being this thinking machine and uh, just someone who intimidates anyone and who has no particular um, emotional content to him. But what I found in the books was a man who is, um, who is just consumed by the need to, to fight evil. Uh, a man who is who is in uh, capable of deep friendships, although not of expressing it. I mean, uh, that's very English anyway, and very Victorian. But Holmes even more so. 
and and there's humor in the stories, which I had really not anticipated. Um, there's there's various things that make me laugh aloud because they're just so absurd. And working my way through them, I began to see my way to a character who um, who, who I could live with um, in in the background. And of course, the first stories, the first oh maybe even half a dozen novels of the Russells. Um, Russell, Mary Russell is a young female feminist, 20th century Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So if you took his brain and you, you transplanted it into this young woman's body, that's what, that's what it would look like. So the two of them are well-matched um, in the, in the first, uh, first few scenes she gets the better of him, which is a deeply satisfying thing to write of a young, a young woman who gets the better of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and, and the, the bulk of those first stories have him very much in the background. He is a supporting actor. And I had to make sure that the publishers always put on the cover that this was a Russell and Holmes novel, not a Holmes and Russell novel. Mm -hmm. It was one that they, they they redid the cover after I saw it and corrected that, and I was not happy, and they had to reissue the cover because it would set a Holmes and Russell novel, and I said, absolutely not. He is a supporting actor, and she is the main character. But I, as I got maybe six or seven books in, I began to become more interested in him as a character and to look at this character that Conan Doyle stopped writing at the eve of the Great War, that Conan Doyle could never envision him in the days after the war started. He wrote stories that were written after that, but they were all set before. And I thought, you know, this is really selling the character short. I think that someone with as much imagination and energy and drive and commitment as the character Sherlock Holmes would not be relegated into the background and just fade away. Um, so I, I felt free to let him develop as a character. And that's been really interesting to, mm -hmm. to watch him. And I think the first time you really see that is the book that's set in San Francisco called Locked Rooms, where Russell is remembering and re-experiencing her own past. And she's proving to be this massively competent woman. She's proving to be an unreliable narrator. And it isn't until Holmes pops up in the book and gives his take on something that's just happened that you begin to notice that she is unreliable, that she is emotionally compromised and that he is a person worthy of listening to. So anyway, that mm -hmm. starting with that book and then going on, um, there's chapters that I let him have in his voice. It's, I keep mm -hmm. him to third person, and the other, the other parts are all written first person Russell. But it's been interesting to, you know, to develop him as a character. And, you know, it's so interesting because when you started, uh, these books, the internet, people don't, 
<laughs> you know, the internet wasn't a thing. It wasn't. I mean, there were the listservs and discussion boards and things weren't a thing. And, and so when all of that became more of an influence, you were well into the series and, and, and a conversationalist in that. But I think um, that when, when I first was, first was published, the first two or three listservs were just starting. And there was one called, I think it was called the Hounds of the Internet, where the Sherlock Holmes community hung out. Well, I, I lived in a rural area. We had the kind of internet connection that involved a telephone and putting the receiver down on a little box and it would warble. So if you, yeah. if you got a warble and it actually connected, you could have an internet connection for a few minutes until it dropped off. So that was the extent of my, you know, I mean, cutting edge technology for me was the fax machine. That was yeah. really exciting when we could get a fax machine. But, um, so I was completely unaware that when the first couple of Russells came out, I was flamed online. But because I wasn't online, I had no clue. I had no idea that there were groups that met. I mean, I knew that there was a group called the Baker Street Irregulars, but they might have all been on Mars for all I knew. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I didn't know that there was this huge argument going on in the background for years. And I think that it by the time I became aware of it, enough of the Sherlockians had been reassured that, no, this King woman is not going to start writing you know, you know, Holmesian erotica or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can trust her. But she, she not only respects the character of Sherlock Holmes, but also respects the, the author, Conan Doyle. And mm -hmm. by the time I, I got out there at all, the, the voices were mixed enough that there were friends in the Sherlockian community who invited me in and welcomed me and eventually made me, as you mentioned in your intro, made me a, um, a, a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is a very limited and honored position. So there we are. You are, have been incredibly prolific uh, in your writing journey uh, and continue to be. And I want to talk about the new novel. I also want to talk about the uh, anthology about how to write a mystery. But can you just let us in a little bit about your process for writing? How do you write a book? Well, I think I think like many human beings on the planet at the moment, <laughs> not just writers, but uh, human beings, you kind of have before and before and now, right? So that, you know, yes. before COVID, <laughs> I would, um, I, I tended, I've always tended to alternate series to some extent. Um, the Russells have proved more popular for various reasons, um, but I I can't bear writing the same characters year in and year out. For some people, it's perfectly comfortable. I mean, Sue Grafton was absolutely happy to have you know no one but her Kinsey Milhone, um, Lee Child. Everything he wants to do in mysteries can be done with Jack Reacher. And that's great for them, but I can't. It makes me crazy. 
I had one, one, sometimes I have to do a couple of Russells in a row and then another one. But one time I had to do four in a row. And the fourth book starts with poor Russell with a severe head injury and amnesia. And I thought, you know, if I have to do a fifth one, she's going to lose a limb. <laughs> you know, I, I hurt my characters the, the longer I've lived with them. So I, I said to my editor, look, you know, un, unless you want something really awful to happen to these people, maybe we should do something else next time. So uh, so I tend to alternate the, the, the worlds, either mm-hmm. a series and a series, um, a series and a standalone. I have generally tended to write a book a year so that I'd be doing kind of vague research beforehand before I start writing, but I tend not to start a book seriously until I've finished the last one. And when I say finished, I mean finished the the rewrite. I I, I can do page proofs, which take less, you know, take less attention than uh, you know than, than an actual edit, but. To think about the plot, the characters, and the world, um, two different sets of that at the same time, I find really tough. Mm-hmm. But I can kind of work myself up to starting a book beforehand. So I'm doing a lot of the research. I'm accumulating the books. I'm traveling. Most of the Russells tend to move around because I decided early on that unless I wanted to get into the Cabot Cove problem of having... <laughs> These two people who live in rural Sussex and who keep finding dead bodies. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, need, I needed to shift them around the world. And it, there, were, there was a convenient way of doing that in that Mycroft Holmes, Holmes's brother, is an, you know sort of in charge of this international spy wing of the government. So he just sends them places, which is very convenient for me because what, it's an excuse. Yeah. It's an excuse to travel to Israel and Japan and <laughs> all these places. So, um, so I will I will usually do any travel beforehand. Once or twice I've done it during or even after I've done this sort of basic uh, draft, but usually it's beforehand to give me an idea of the time and place. And then, um, and then I have. Let's see. I don't outline. I am a, I am an organic writer. I tend to know the characters, the place, the time, and the essential the essential issues in the book and the sort of flavor of the book. When I first started, I I tended to know the final scene, just hmm. so I would have an idea of who was still standing when the dust settled and I would write towards that Mm -hmm. um when I was about six or seven books in I suddenly realized that I I didn't know the final scene in the book I was working on and I found that absolutely terrifying until I just pushed forward and that seems to be how the brain works um for those of us who are not outliners I think that to my experience the brain knows where it's going, that there is an outline for that book in the back of the head. It's just that some of us don't have the ability to put it on paper as a separate thing from the actual writing. 
When mm-hmm. I write a book, I'm writing, I'm writing the outline. It's a 250, 300-page outline that is not the novel. I mean, the, my first drafts are not only bad, but they are extremely short. But it tells me what the novel will look like. Mm-hmm. So I'll write that in about three or four months. Um, that's working, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 words a day. I will finish that, send it off to my editor, usually at that point. I don't send stuff unless I have some specific question that I need feedback on. I don't tend to send my editor things unfinished. Um, there have just been a couple of times when I've been uncertain about, there was one There was one book that I thought, should this be in the third person or the first? Because it didn't feel right. And I Mm -hmm. talked to them. And that was helpful. Um, But for the most part, they know what I'm doing and I go away and do it. And then I give them the first draft. (laughs) Writing this letter that always starts, this is crap, but... (laughs) Read this with one eye closed. Um, And it's, it's... I'm fortunate in that I've only had three primary editors during my career. Wow. So I don't have to keep breaking people in and telling them, I know this is awful. Um, it's, it's roughly where the book is going. And I, I'm sure there are some editors out there who would get my first draft and they'd, they'd turn the book down and they'd let me keep my events because it was just so awful. Fortunately, the editors that I've worked with have been able to see where the story is behind the the rubbish. The book goes more or less cold while they are reading it. And that usually is fairly rapidly. Sometimes it takes them a a month to get back to me, but sometimes it's faster because it's not a line edit. It's a big Mm -hmm. edit. So it's a developmental edit. Um. And while I am waiting for that, I'm doing peripheral things so that if there's, you know, I keep a whole list of notes as to things I don't know and need to in the book. So I'll be researching, you know, the place or forensics or all kinds of things or whatever, whatever I've made notes on as I've been writing that haven't been worth stopping what I was doing to do the research then and there but needs to be done before the book is actually publishable. So it means that when I get my editorial letter back, uh, the, the manuscript has gone cold in my head and I can then pick it up and look at it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost impossible to edit your own stuff at the best of times, but if you try and do it while it's freshly written, it's really, really difficult. But if it's if it's had three or four weeks to sit while you've been doing other stuff, um, you can see it, it's easy to see the flaws, but sometimes you can see the the places where you were going and where mm-hmm. you could do it correctly in the final draft. So then the fire launch off on the final draft, and that takes probably the the same amount of time, three three months or so to do the final draft. Partly it depends on how long the first draft has taken. So I find if I have a, I have a four month first draft by my second, my second draft is three months and vice versa. 
Um, and then we get into the nitty gritty of the editorial and the line edits and eventually goes off to the copy editor and then that's then I can turn to the next book. So all of that process takes roughly a year mm-hmm. for me. And you write some current, present day, you write some historical and historical takes that extra layer of research and accuracy and everything else. Especially if it's a history that I, that, that is new to me. Um, mm-hmm. There, I, I, by this time I know the twenties fairly well because of the 18 books of in the Russell and Holmes series. But there was one that I had to research the Victorian era because quite a bit of it took place when Sherlock Holmes is young. And it, that was that that was a challenge to dive into a completely different era and the clothes they wore and when did they stop wearing bustles and go into crinolines and vice versa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all the rest of that that you have to get right because otherwise you get those letters from people saying, yeah. In 1863. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So historical readers are are notorious for accuracy. Yeah. And and it was sort of the opposite problem with the, the current book, um, Back to the Garden, because it's set in a time that I don't think of as historical. It's the 70s. And so I know, <laughs> you know, I was I was an adult then, right? And so I had to keep looking things up because I, I had to think about, well. When did that come in, and what music were we actually listening to? And 1979 were women in the in the in the wide um, shoulder pads yet, and disco, yeah. or were we still hippies then? <laughs> yeah. So, and why 1979 for this new book? Well, I I always wanted to write one in the 60s because you know the 60s is such a fun time, and I thought. It's, it's, it's my era. I live in a town in California that is, it never really got out of the sixties. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's Santa Cruz is, is a, is a very much a hippie community still. But the problem with the sixties is that the, those of us who remember it <laughs> are getting a little old around the edges. So if you're going to write a cold case book that is partly modern time and partly then you can't kill off all your suspects in the cold case murder they can't all be in their 90s or in care (laughs) facilities (laughs) so so i kind of had to move things on about 10 years so that you know i mean i think I think it's reasonable to have people in their 60s and 70s as being active and vital. I mean, I've got a brother-in-law in his 80s who runs regularly and lifts weights and all the rest of it. So I I know that there are those of us who are still active. But um, but if you make them in the 90s, you sort of think you 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 really limit your suspect pool rather drastically. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so I kind of shifted it on. And in fact, it proved to be a good decision because the late 70s were a time when the communes that had been launched in the 60s and early 70s with all this enthusiasm and the back to the earth and the flower power and the alternative lifestyles and 
how we were going to change the world. Those are coming to an end. I mean, it's kind of like the book that I wrote that set just before the stock market crash in the 20s, that the reader knows that things are coming to an end, but the characters don't. And in 1979, you can feel the 60s are over. They are way over, even in the communes. And harder drugs are moving in and different issues are coming along. And people are people have children. They've, you know, the kids have been born in the communes, but do you really want your kid to be educated to not have proper dental care? to not have the backing. I mean, you have to be really committed to the commune life to take it on to your kids. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of the communes that were running with great enthusiasm through <clears throat> the early part of the 70s began to fall apart in the late 70s. And that's that, as it turns out, is when this book is set. You have you know, set in a, the later days of a, of a commune. And, and the why and the the changes that are coming in. And is the premise of the book going to be cold cases from different periods? Or? I think so. I think so. I think that working cold cases is interesting. And the main character, when in this book, um, Raquel Lang is a San Francisco police department inspector who has been seconded to the cold case unit because of a series of injuries and a sort of legal question as well. So she she comes under the wing of a man who is with Cold Case and who those who have read the Kate Martinelli series know because Al Hawken is, is in those as well. So this is not a Martinelli book, but Al Hawken is in them. So there's this sort of nice. overlap. Yeah. So Raquel Lang becomes the the sort of um, protege of this very brilliant inspector. But she doesn't really fit well in the police department milieu. And it's because she is, and this is something I only realized after I'd written my first draft and looked at this character that I'd had real problems with figuring out what her backstory was and how much I could give away, how, you know, how, what what sort of details should I talk about about her? Um, and decided that I, you know, I would finish the first draft and then go back and decide how much to fill in. That I realized looking at that first draft that her personality is very much like that of Sherlock Holmes. And one of the key issues of Sherlock Holmes is that you don't know anything about him. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the fascinating things about the character is he basically has no family. He's a brother, but doesn't appear except in two stories. Um, he has a friendship, but it's mostly with Watson. Um, he has, he went to university, but you don't know if he graduated or what university it was. Right. So right. I kind of took that as the pattern for Raquel Wang of there's lots of stuff you don't know about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that sets the groundwork for an interesting series of some of which will be exploring her clearly enigmatic backstory mm-hmm. and some of which may not. And I think that the idea of the cold case <clears throat> investigations 
is an interesting one because you can do a couple of timelines and play with just like I play with the in the Russells, I do different I have the move around the world, and that gives mm-hmm. me a whole new set of issues and characters that they go to. And this gives me a different set of issues and possibilities and um, and places in the area. I mean, obviously, cold case tends to work mostly its own its own area. In this one, the San Francisco Police Department actually has no right to investigate where she investigates, but it's explained in the book, so I get away with it. <laughs> well, I, what I'm, I'm also hearing you say, sorry to interrupt, but what I'm also hearing you say, which I find um, fascinating and inspiring, is that you're also challenging yourself. You're like, you know, I'm going to write two timelines, I'm going to create this character who's challenging and at this stage of your career to to set that challenge for yourself is very inspiring it was an interesting it was an interesting experience writing this book because you basically have two stories but unless you're going to have them completely separated and tell the story of rob gardner comes home from vietnam and then he's the link that takes you all the way to the end. Unless you're going to tell that whole story and end it in 1979 and then start the new story nowadays and go on. You have to find a way of weaving them together. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's a fascinating writing challenge to have two completely different sets of characters. I mean, there's, only a handful of characters who are in both uh, both timelines and and yet to make them all instantly recognizable that you you're not lost when mm-hmm. you know, when you shift the chapters and to give the backstory chapters and the current chapters in ways that feed into each other and illuminate each other now, there's a couple of chapters where, you know, you have to trust your reader. I think that there are two or three places in the book where you have these then chapters, the backstory chapters, where there are things that Raquel Lang doesn't know and needs to, but she couldn't find them out in this specific way. But the reader needs to know them. Mm-hmm. So the reader finds things out that Raquel Lang doesn't know yet. And without having someone actually tell her this by an interview, because it's something that, I mean, there's one scene where there's two characters, one of whom she hasn't interviewed yet, and one of whom isn't available to her. And, and yet the reader needs to see this, because it, it puts some things together for the reader that are good to know then, rather than to t- sort of tack it on at the end. Right. So it's a... You know, the craft of weaving things, these things together was indeed a, an interesting challenge. As if, yeah. as if we didn't need any more interesting challenges <laughs> over the last, you know, 18 months in our lives. <laughs> um, another project you did take on uh, is the How to Write a Mystery, which the Mystery Writers of America uh, published and you edited with Lee Child. Um, 
And I love that this book is out there for people to read and to to um, peruse as they're navigating their own writing journey. But, you know, I'm sure you've come across good and bad writing advice, probably gotten both. Um, were there any things that stood out to you as you were editing and compiling or having conversations with people about that book that um, you thought, oh, people really need to understand this? I think the basic premise of the book and one that we encouraged our, our contributors to, to lean into and one that goes along with both MWA and Sisters in Crime is that this is a community of writers and we all can learn from each other and we all do things differently. So that, I mean, it's sort of the, the perfect exemplar of, you, I mean, How to Write a Mystery is made up of contributions from 70 different writers. Some of them are very small contributions from a sort of contest that we ran. And some of them were, about half of them are people that we specifically asked to write a chapter on this or that, mm-hmm. you know, Meg Gardner writing with the one on thrillers. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, various people. So, but each of those, um, I, I we we asked them to write that this is how they work, and and how it works for them, not in general terms of well, you don't have to work this way, but this is how I work, because the balance of it is the voices of people, and this is how it works for them. And a great illustration of the two chapters that we chose to put next to each other, where Jeff Deaver writes the chapter on, you must outline, because he is Mr. Outline. If you've ever heard him speak, he gives a series of talks. When he was president of MWA, he gave a talk. He flew in at his own expense to give a workshop on outlining to each of the 11 MWA chapters. Um, I mean, he's, he's great on the outline. So he was the obvious person to try to write the chapter on outline. And then you have Lee Child who doesn't outline, who doesn't even take much editorial contribution without fighting. And his chapter was never outline. <laughs> so you, you have, you have you have Jeff Deaver always outline, Jim, Lee Child never outline, both hugely successful authors, both brilliant writers. And mm-hmm. both of them, and we put those two chapters right next to each other because, and I, and I think we all need to realize this at the beginning of our career is that what works for you may not work for me. We mm-hmm. just had a very good weekend in uh, Corte Madera the book passage writing conference where that was a thing that I think any craft conference is great to get across because you have certain people whose faces just light up when you talk about how you work as a person who doesn't outline. I mean, I, I don't feel that I have to outline occasionally it's a useful tool and occasionally I will I will list out the things that I need to do. But my brain doesn't work that way. 
And there's no reason that your brain has to work that way either if you're, you outline better. So I love that. I love that. And I also love what you, you talked about with community because uh, writing is a solo activity, but the crime writing community, any writing community is important, but the crime writing community is a very good community, I think. Uh, it's, it's remarkably and paradoxically supportive, isn't it? I mean, yes. considering that we spend our lives murdering people and hiding the facts, <laughs> um, when we get together, we're all really friendly and great and supportive. And, um, you know, the both Sisters in Crime and NWA have forums that if you're having a problem, you can, you can log on to and say, anyone know what to do about X? Or can you help me with Y? Or... And the, to, I think we're all looking forward to the, the relaunch of get-togethers, actual face-to-face yeah. get-togethers. Because the amount that you learn hanging out in a bar with a friend is mm-hmm. extraordinary. And yeah. that's kind of what uh, any of the get-togethers are like. Yeah, and commiserating in person. <laughs> <laughs> now there's that. We, yeah. yeah, we all fake it in social media, but when you see somebody, it's like, all right, let's have a real conversation. Yeah, yeah. You, it's hard, hard to complain about your, you know, your publicist or your cover in print. <laughs> yeah, over a drink, you can start a bitch fest that just never ends. <laughs> Larry, what do you wish you'd known sooner? As a writer or on this publishing, as an author, I mean, they're two separate journeys, but. Um. I think there was something that, um, that I kind of stumbled into and sort of wish I'd thought about it sooner. And uh, instead of just realizing it later on, and that is that there's a difference between writing a book and starting a career. And mm-hmm. I think. A lot of us who, especially people who do self-pub, end up getting so wrapped up in that book they've written that they don't look at what they're writing. They don't look at the fact that if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a long-term career-based writer, it's you have to keep putting words on the page. And not just when you finish, you keep polishing and then you find somebody to fix it and then you choose to self-pub and you promote it and all the rest. Meanwhile, you know, a year has gone by, two years have gone by and you're not producing new material. You're not stretching yourself Mm -hmm. or discovering yourself as a writer. So I think that, and especially, as I said, it's it's especially dangerous for self-pub authors because the temptation is to just keep dancing around the one that you finished and not go on to the next one. The balance mm-hmm. between writing and promoting is is always tough. And, you know, when I got started, <laughs> I remember being told by my publisher that they they didn't want me involved in promotion. They They just, they wanted me to show up at events and that was all. And of course, that was obviously before the days of the internet, but they, they didn't want me to do stuff other than show up. They didn't want my input. They didn't want. Now it's the absolute opposite, that if mm-hmm. you are expecting your publisher to do it all for you, you're going to be, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Um, any new writer, any established writer um, has to keep working on the next one. 
before they get wrapped up in the in what they've already done. Such great advice, and and you did that at the beginning, and I ha- didn't comment on it then, but uh, that you were ready with th- three books when you know, you got an agent or people were interested that you'd kept writing instead of fixing that first book over and over and over again, um, is something that most people don't do. They keep working on that first book, um, (laughs) over and over again, whereas your, your second book's better than your first because you learned how to write the first time. I think that probably was one of the advantages of, being in the 80s and early 90s, that you were forced to delay because there was no point in, if you sent a manuscript off to a publisher whose name you got out from the back of, you know, publisher's world or whatever, um, there was no point in working on it while they were looking at it because then they they wouldn't be seeing the same manuscript. So if you were going to work on anything, you had to start something else. Because actually putting something in the mail and sending it off meant that you're not going to see it for weeks, months. And of course, in the days of, uh, those were the days of of the slush pile, which is basically a closet in the publishers where they pile the manuscripts. And then on a Friday afternoon, all the assistant editors would get together with pizza and beer and, and look through the manuscripts and see if they had anything that they wanted to publish. Well, Basically, if you weren't in the first 10% of the heaped up manuscripts, you would just get your manuscript back. But yeah, yeah, I was sort of forced into doing it because nobody had bought the first one instantaneously. So if I wanted to keep, keep working, I would have to start something new. So, yeah. Well, obviously the writing, the writing thing has worked out well for you. (laughs) It has. It has. I have a roof Um, over my head. I can't complain. No, and congratulations on Back to the Garden and and launching a new series. Oh, and, uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's and we will see you at conferences coming up. Gotcha, come on, all the rest of them, and oh yeah, <laughs> that is a good thing. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for being a member of Sisters in Crime. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you, Julie. This has been lovely. And. Um, Here's to crime to all of you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.